I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interac. For nearly 35 years, Interac has brought the most innovative payment technology to Canada. Today, Interac is building on its track record of innovation in some exciting new ways. Find out how they're changing the game at developer.interac.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about the impossible mission force than I know about the appointing of a royal commission. And that's kind of a problem. So that's why I'm inviting really smart people into the studio to explain things to me like I'm five. In Canada, our pop culture landscape is kind of dominated by the product of other countries. And that's why I feel like I know a lot about the intelligence services of the United States and the United Kingdom. But really what I know about is Jack Ryan, James Bond, and Jason Bourne. And so I got to thinking, what does intelligence gathering look like in Canada? To help me answer that question, I have Dick Fadden, former head of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. So I have, I have a lot of questions about CSIS because I know essentially nothing about it. Uh, I'm going to start with, with when. When was CSIS founded? CSIS was founded by Parliament in 1985, just after there was a bit of a crisis with the old RCMP security service. Okay. And the Parliament of the day decided that the nature of the threats to national security were different than law enforcement and that they required a separate agency. So that was the rationale for creating it back in 1985. Okay. And so originally the, 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 uh, the role that CSIS plays was entirely played by the RCMP. That's right, through the okay. security service. Okay, excellent. And so what is that role? What does CSIS do? Well, in its essence, CSIS is an intelligence agency, which means that it collects intelligence and information. And it does so in respect of threats to national security, which we break down into four parts. Terrorism, uh, sabotage, uh, foreign influence, uh, and subversion, which is sort of trying to overthrow the government with violence and and terrorism, sorry. And what we do is, or what they do is, if there's a suspicion that somebody is uh, operating in one of these categories... They operate a file, and they try and find out information about that. And if they find enough information to warrant concern, what happens then in almost every case is they transfer the information to another agency of the Government of Canada, the Mounties, the Border Services Agency, whatever, which have executive authority to do something about it. Right. So there's not, it's not a thing where it's – not, it's not Jack Ryan where he's going to get in a helicopter and go off somewhere. From no, absolutely not. There's a relatively small uh, change to CSIS's mandate, which occurred two or three years ago, which does allow CSIS now to disrupt operations when they consider that in a reasonable and proportionate way they can uh, deal with a threat to national security. So to give you an example – Mm-hmm. Uh, before this mandate change, CSIS was only allowed to collect information. So they could be collecting information about a young man or a young woman who wanted to go to Syria to be a jihadist. And the law prohibited CSIS from talking to that person's parents or guardians or imam. Now, in theory, you can go to another agency and ask the Mounties to do something like right. that. But agencies have cultural differences. They have different priorities. In any event, in the end, Parliament decided that if you could do something that's reasonable and proportional, 
you can you could do something like that. You could try and stop the uh, the threat to national security from occurring. And if, in order to do that, you have to violate the law, then you need a warrant from the federal court. Okay, okay. Um, and so, what uh, when you say uh, in order to do that, uh, violating the federal law? What's like what's an example of that? Uh, breaking into somebody's house and okay. stealing their passport so that they can't go to uh, country X. Okay, and is that like is that the kind of strategy then that would be not to like ask about specifics because I know that's the thing that gets everybody you know uh, mm. <laughs> gets everybody on some kind of list, but. Uh, well, what we try and do, or what CSIS tries to do whenever they determine that there's a threat, is they try and do anything they can without violating the law. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's just most agencies or all agencies of the government are like that. You're not paid to violate the law. But if you can find a relatively easy way, and there are three clear prohibitions. You can't endanger life, you can't interfere with the administration of justice, and you can't interfere with anybody's sexual integrity. So if, if without doing these three things, you can convince the federal court uh, to allow you to enter into a place to remove something, to fool around with somebody's computer in order to right. deter a, a threat to national security, you can do it. Okay. Um, the, the first two of those made sense to me as to what they were. What is sexual integrity? It is not defined in the law, but basically I think it means that you cannot do anything uh, in a sexual way that would make anyone feel uncomfortable. Okay. okay. It's meant to be very broad. Right. Okay. Um, so you were talking about gathering information. How is information gathered? Well, I think two ways. Um, let me start by building a bit of a situation. A director of the CIA once told me that over 95% of the information and intelligence that they used came from open sources. Okay. It may not be from easily accessible open sources, right. but open sources. So I think it's something similar in Canada. So you have an analyst, for example, who worries about terrorism. He or she would scour the the universe, you know, through open sources. And if there's a determination made that there's a potential threat, uh, you can convince somebody one or two levels higher, uh, you open a file. Uh, and if it's judged that there's a real possibility that there's a problem there, you then ask yourselves, how can I find out more about this? And if you can't do it by, you know, by either accessing open sources or just talking to people. And that's one of the things that CSIS does more than anything else. They talk to people. Okay. The idea is to have operators who can develop confidence with people and talk to them. If that doesn't work, you go to the federal court and you ask for a warrant to enter into a place, to take something away, to plant a bug, to interfere with something. But you go through those three, those three steps first. Okay. Um, and when you talk about open sources, what's uh, like, are we talking like, uh, um, like records at City Hall and things like that? Like what's, what's an open source? Any, anything that's available. I mean, okay. if you think about today sitting down at your computer and wanting to find out about Subject X, most mm -hmm. people start with Wikipedia. But if they're really right. interested... They can go on for days on end, looking at databases both in this country and anywhere around the planet. If that doesn't work, not everything is digitized, then you go to City Hall or you go somewhere else and you find the records. The key is simply that they have to be generally accessible in okay. that initial phase. Right. So then is a comparison to the American CIA appropriate? I don't think it is, except for a very small smidgen okay. uh, of CSIS's mandate. CSIS collects information basically for two purposes. The one we've already talked about, threats to national security. There's also a provision that allows CSIS, uh, in certain circumstances, to collect foreign intelligence. That's intelligence about foreign states. 
That's the one real similarity with the CIA, because you will know as well as I, the CIA operates exclusively outside the United States. It has a paramilitary capacity. Right. It's in a different range altogether. Um, in fact, there aren't very many real similarities, except, for example, ASIO, the Australian equivalent, very similar to ours. But in many countries, both in the West and elsewhere, you sort of merge the domestic and the foreign. Okay. Uh, and we try to avoid that, except in that small exception, dealing with the collection of foreign intelligence, which can only occur if the foreign affairs minister or the defense minister asks for it. So there are a whole set of special circumstances surrounding it. Fascinating. So aside from the, the idea that uh, the RCMP could go out and arrest someone, and that's really not something that is under the, the umbrella of what CSIS does, how else do the organizations differ? Well, that's a very good question. I think they differ fun, really in a fundamental way. The RCMP is a quasi-military organization. It's been given special powers by parliament. They carry guns. They can arrest people. Uh, and they have, I think, something of the order of 100 statutes that they have to enforce. Uh, they're accountable effectively to the courts. Okay. You know, CSIS, on the other hand, is a civilian agency. It has no powers of enforcement. It can't arrest anybody. Uh, and in fact, I would argue that it can't really intimidate anybody, although we have had instances in the past where just a CSIS officer going up and you know knocking on the door and saying, can I talk to you, is regarded as uh, intimidating somebody. But if a police person does that, that is in some ways intimidating because we know that the first thing that they can do if they're really unhappy is say, you're coming down to the station right, like in the old right. movies. CSIS cannot do that. Right. Okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, relationships uh, between CSIS and, and other organizations and other – well, actually, you were the director of CSIS and then later you were the national security advisor. How do those roles interact? Well, let me talk a little bit about what the National Security Advisor yes, does. Please. He yeah. basically is the Prime Minister's agent uh, for dealing with the 10 or 12 agencies in Canada that have some responsibility dealings with national security broadly defined. So why does he, the Prime Minister of the day, need a special officer doing this? In part, it's because of the culture of secrecy, which of necessity permeates this field. Okay, yep. It's also a particularly sensitive field. And if I've learned one thing, one of the things that prime ministers don't like is being surprised. <laughs> Nobody does. They okay. really don't like being surprised. So in agencies like CSIS or CSEC or parts of the military or whatnot, the tendency is to not broadcast what they're doing. Uh, and often, you know, people in the media or some other way, things will pop up and will surprise their minister, parliament, the media. Not a good thing. So the role of the NSA is to keep his or her sort of uh, hand on the pulse of the national security agencies so that he has a good enough relationship with them that he knows if something's going to pop up. Right. And on behalf of the prime minister, if he thinks he's with, operating within reasonable parameters, he can say, mm, I don't think this is a good idea. You really need to think this through. Or alternatively, something is on the verge of blowing up, and he then tells the PM, ministers, the political side, and anybody else who needs to know. So it's a question of generally knowing what's going on so you can warn people, but also of coordinating. Right. Because I think one of the characteristics of national security today, rarely does it involve only one department. People right. have to collaborate. And that actually leads to my next question, which is how does uh, CSIS interact with, with other, other agencies or other, other organizations? Uh, in Canada? Yeah. 
Uh, well, we do like at one level, CSIS interacts like any other department. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Heritage Canada will talk to the Treasury Board about getting more money or getting special right. authority. So at, at one level, it's like any other department. Um, the law allows CSIS to tell other government departments if there's a threat concerning them, and we do that. It also allows other departments to talk to CSIS about threats that they may consider noteworthy. But fundamentally, uh, it's a question of just generally maintaining an awareness of what's going on. And like everything else in Ottawa, you do this through committees and working groups and whatnot. (laughs) Uh, And you develop relationships with people. Because in the end, you know, you can structure institutions however well you want to. If you don't have people who are willing to talk to one another and trust one another, it becomes very, very difficult. So... uh, there will have been once or twice a year a meeting of fairly senior people who will have, I don't know, decided that these 12 topics are important for this year. Right. And a special effort would be made to make sure that the four or five or six or seven or eight departments that deal with those topics collaborate, talk to each other, uh, let each other know when there are problems. So in many ways, the only difference between how CSIS interacts and other departments is it really does so under a veil of secrecy because of the subject matter. Right. Much of the remainder is like anybody else. So uh, you mentioned inside of Canada uh, for interactions. How about outside of Canada? Does CSIS talk to other organizations out there? And is that a thing you can talk about? Yeah, no, I think I can a little bit. I mean, the organizations that we talk uh, to the most are, are opposite numbers in the five eyes. Uh, Canada, the U.S., Australia, the United Kingdom, and New Zealand. This is an alliance that grew out of World War II and very, very close relationships between all of the entities there. Uh, And that goes on at every level from the most senior to the most junior. A lot of information is shared. Then there's another layer of what I would call, you know, close allies, our NATO allies, countries that we're very friendly with, by and large, that are democratic. Okay. When you go beyond that level, you have to start asking yourself – two things. Does this country or this agency have intelligence that you want to have access to? And where do they fit on the spectrum of respecting human rights? Um, One of my predecessors once told me that one of my main jobs would be the management of thugs. Because in some countries, the security service is is run uh, with a great deal of violence, and, and it's not a pretty sight. I've always thought that if you're going to have relationships with countries like that, and sometimes you have to, mm-hmm. because if you need information that can save Canadian lives, you can't have a six-day debate on whether or not you know, they're good enough or not good enough to have access. One of the measures that we use to protect ourselves in the sense of you know, getting cover is that these kinds of relationships, all of the other countries require ministerial approval. So if, if I wanted to, as director of CSIS, go out and develop a relationship with the security service of Sudan, right. I would have to make the case to the Minister of Public Safety, on the one hand, what are we going to get out of it? And on the other hand, are they so bad that we really can't have any dealings with them? Okay. Uh, most of the relationships are in the first two tiers, yep. but there are a significant number in the outer tier. And then there are a number of other countries, I mean, two come to mind, uh, Russia and China. They are not our enemies, but clearly they are our adversaries. So we have formal relationships. You know, you might talk about terrorism or things like that. But we both know, both sides, that they're spying on us and we're trying to keep an eye on them. Long answer to a short question, <laughs> but it's a fairly complex area no, because of the ethical yeah. issues involved. Yeah. Um, we were talking before about uh, a little bit about the American CIA and we were talking about the difference with uh, – uh, 
they were uh, at least originally in their charter, they were not to gather information on Americans. Mm-hmm. What kind of limitations are there on CSIS? Uh, that's a bit of a different situation because okay. CSIS is uh, mandated to deal with threats to the security of Canada, and those threats can come from foreigners or Canadians. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, or anywhere else for that matter, if there's a threat to the security of Canada, there's no distinction. We can investigate it and we can look at it. Uh, I think it's fair to say that if the individual is a Canadian or a Canadian resident, everybody is more cautious. The service will be more cautious. The federal court will be more cautious. But to illustrate what I'm trying to say, it makes little difference if somebody's going to throw a bomb as a Canadian or a non-Canadian. We have to investigate them uh, and figure out what they're doing. And once we do that, uh, if we get a file that's sufficiently developed, it will go to the Mounties and they will arrest them whether they're Canadian or Mm non-Canadian. Um, the CIA was created, back to the early, your earlier question, to be a foreign intelligence right, agency. Okay. Their partial uh, – the U.S. is partial equivalent to CSIS is that part of the FBI, okay. which deals with national security. Okay. And are there other limitations then on CSIS? Like what are, what are the limits of, of what CSIS can do? Well, we've sort of alluded them to them often, off and on. One, you need a real connection with national security. Okay. So in some countries, if the Minister of the Interior or the President doesn't like you, he can ask the Secret Service to go out and just investigate you and make a nuisance. In this country, that's absolutely forbidden. You need a threat to national security. Uh, you cannot violate the law except in those circumstances that I talked about. Um, and there are some limitations about what you can do in Canada and you can do abroad. For example, the collection of foreign intelligence that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. is internal to Canada. Uh, the disruptive power that I talked about earlier is both in Canada and out. But the main constraint is really that you have to have a substantive and reasonable belief that a threat to national security exists. And once that happens, all these various levers can be used to to advance the file. Okay. Uh, Speaking of threats, how have threats to national security changed? and, And how has CSIS changed with those threats? That is a very good question, and I think it's one that people underestimate. Um, prior to 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, the main threat was thought to be the Cold War. It was the Soviet Union and communist China. And most of the resources, not all, but the vast majority of the resources of not only Canada but of our close allies were focused on dealing with espionage. Okay. 9-11 represented uh, a tectonic shift in that. All of these agencies, both here and everywhere else in the world, had a substantively shift towards terrorism. And that may seem like you you just flip a switch, but the real difference is in the case of dealing with espionage by states, it's relatively controlled. Mm -hmm. You can identify who's in command. And after a while, everybody develops a modus operandi that you can can recognize. In the case of terrorism, non-state entities... There's no chain of command. They're all over the planet. They are very hard to predict. So it did require a significant shift in the way that people thought about that particular threat. That, I think, is one that remains with us. Uh, The other big shift that we've seen has been a technological one. It's been the advent of cyber threats and whatnot. But one of the characteristics, I think, today of the threats that we talk about is that they're all interrelated. Like Russia and China today uses cyber. Terrorists use cyber. Cyber is used by other states, so they're all interrelated. But the biggest shift today, I think, the biggest risk today, 
is on the one hand cyber generally, cyber crime, mm -hmm. and then cyber terrorism and cyber espionage. And I would say China and Russia, again, you know, they're clearly not our friends anymore, with terrorism remaining a very close third. Okay. If you are a person who works for CSIS, uh, are you allowed to go home at night and talk about your day with your spouse? That was, in fact, a moderately touchy subject with my spouse because a lot of, you know, you can go home and talk about people and things right. and whatnot. But a bit like you, maybe, what's really of interest is the spicy stuff. You right. Know? And you can't talk about it. So my wife got to saying, oh, sure, Dick comes home and talks about his day. He tells me what kind of salad he has for lunch. <laughs> so it is, in fact, one of the challenges because it's very isolating. Right. You know, you can't talk too much because you have to maintain some measure of secrecy. And I always thought that it presents another problem because you, you slowly, after a while, construct a bubble around yourself right. and your colleagues and I, a bubble is not a good thing. I don't care in what field of operations you're working, but in particular in national security, if you don't talk to other people about other things, you can sort of – it's like being on the vice squad, you know? Okay, yeah. I, I'm told that vice officers after a while develop a really negative view of humanity. Of course, yeah, yeah, because that's and, what they're seeing every yeah, day, all day. And it's yeah. sort of like that with, with CSIS. It, the analogy isn't a direct one. So anyway, you can't talk about a lot of the stuff that's really interesting, and it's slightly frustrating for family and friends. Uh, but you sort of find your way. You know, they're asking you about, you know, what about this bomb, and you sort of shift the conversation to, you know, what a wonderful piece of architecture this was, or something like that, <laughs> or how John did fish in the microwave yeah, again, exactly. or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, my last question, and thank you so much for joining us today, is: uh, Are there any? James Bond-style gadgets. Do you have the suitcase that you can open that has a helicopter inside of it or anything like uh, that? No, I certainly did not. Uh, I think some of my officers had suitcases with a few things, tools, yeah. interception tools and whatnot. Uh, I had an encrypted... I had Hidden an encrypt compartments? Hidden yeah, compartments? Something like that, oh, yeah. yeah. All right. I had an encrypted telephone that I could use, but that was about it. Dick Fadden, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Interact maintains one of the world's largest debit networks by supporting 28 million active debit cards in Canada. Thanks to their secure technology and zero liability policy, Canadians can make everyday purchases with peace of mind. Learn more at interact.ca slash fraud prevention. Most departments have a room that is protected against electronic interference. Oh, cool. Uh, because uh, I think one of the biggest threats we have today are cyber threats. So CSIS does have an operations room, but there are also a couple of other general-purpose boardrooms that are equipped so that we can have conversations without worrying about that sort of thing. Kind of like the cone of silence from Get so, Smart. Yeah, from Get Smart, yeah, <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs>